0: All right, good evening, everyone. So Pastor Frank is on his camp retreat, and he asked me to share tonight. He told me I can't teach from 1 Corinthians, though. So you guys are in for a treat from a totally one-off, random passage, but it's going to be good. Uh, A lot of this comes from some uh, seminary research. I was doing in the fall of last year. And, uh, man, it was such a joy to go through, and so I'm going to breeze through a lot of that. But the majority of it will be in John 12, 1 through 13. And my understanding of these Wednesday night classes um, are that they're an opportunity to spend a little bit more time focusing on the teaching and kind of going through the text and some of the deeper meanings. And so this is gonna be real teaching heavy, not necessarily preaching heavy. So I'm not as worried tonight about finding a gospel application to send you home with, but to give you some background knowledge on some research that I've done on this, this section, so. I'll probably find some way to apply it still, but I can't help myself. So, John 12, let's read that together 1 through 13. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. We'll stop there. So much there. So much there. So John, the Gospel of John, we we just went through as a church. I think that there's a major pivot that happens here in John. I think the narrative slows way down and the remainder of John happens within these these six days that is described in the beginning, uh, verse one and 12. So he pivots his whole narrative on this scene. Now, why this scene? Why, is it, why, why this scene of him being anointed for burial? Well, he's being anointed for burial. It's a foreshadowing in some ways. Um, but even the tone and the content changes in this passage, it changes away from the miracle and works of Jesus to the passion narrative, starting here. Now, this unit begins in verse 1 with a timeline setting that says six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. So in those 10 words, we're given timeline, context, and location. And verse one ends with the summary statement of the impact of Jesus's miracles. This unit is framed previously by an extended dialogue in chapter 11 from the Council of Religious Leaders, plotting to kill Jesus. And you heard in this section, they decide all of a sudden, well now we're gonna include Lazarus on that list too. Kinda of makes you wonder how long that list is gonna get before they, before they realize. Hold on. Immediately after this passage, we have Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as we read. This text is a narrative. It gives us some inner dialogue that's unique to John, including some of the motivations of Judas. This is unique here. And what's fascinating and what initially brought me in on this was that part when they said they included Lazarus in their plot to kill him as well. I thought, well, it'd be interesting to do a dive into whether or not we can know if they succeeded in killing Lazarus. I thought, maybe there's some church historical clues. Um, Clearly they were successful in half of their plan to kill Jesus, they completed that. But what about the rest of their plan to kill Lazarus? So I was able to do a deep dive into our buddy Lazarus. Now, obviously in the passage, he's famous. The crowd is following because yeah, Jesus is there, but also this guy who was raised from the dead is there. And the people knew about it, and this was a a really big deal. And so I'll save you, look, I just skipped six pages already. I'll save you all that. I'll just, I'll read the end of that, that one report. So the plot against Jesus in John 11 became the plot to kill Jesus and Lazarus in John 12. They wanted to do that, if this was the religious leaders, they wanted to do that because they wanted to Um, salvage the Jews' relative political and religious autonomy in the region by the ruling Romans. If there was insurrection, the Romans would come and they would squash that. So the Jews were highly motivated to, to wipe all of that out before it became a problem that anyone noticed. So this was part of their motivation for trying to squash this, and now Lazarus is famous, he's drawing crowds, Jesus is drawing crowds. How long before the Romans start to notice? Let's nip this in the bud and kill them both. Kind of makes sense, I guess. So in digging through church history, here's what I found. There are many stories that exist just in different documents around that area that include stories of what Lazarus did after the biblical narratives. And so none of those are direct evidence. They could just be hearsay, but the fact that there's more than one starts to begin this picture of maybe he had some sort of a life, because the Bible doesn't give us anything else there. This is the last we see of Lazarus. This is the end of it, and so I think that there are two possible answers here. One is that they did succeed, and that the reason we don't know much about him now is because they succeeded and he's not a primary character in John's gospel so he just sort of faded into history Uh, the other one that I I find more persuasive is that he escaped I think he escaped to the Isle of Crete so we see a lot of evidence uh, in those islands let me skip ahead to Crete or I mean Cyprus sorry so if you look at the proximity there Cyprus is A nearby island. It's a large body, and uh, it looks like he had it pretty tough there. Poor guy. Um, Yeah, looks looks tough. Um, But this is the church uh, where they claim to have his remains on site. And so in this box, it's a big ornate area inside of this building. And they claim to, this is a, a piece of his skull, they have some of his bones, and they claim this is his body. And that there's, that's not been proven, um, but it's pretty compelling when you look at the whole picture altogether. So as just by way of a side story, I think that after Lazarus became aware that there was a plot against him and Jesus, he began to make plans to leave the city, I don't know exactly when, But it's probable that he escaped somewhere in this six-day period this Passover week. And that when the Sanhedrin was successful in killing Jesus, that maybe some of the heat died down. And maybe there is less reason to go after this guy on an island. We already got the main guy. Maybe Lazarus isn't that much deal. If we killed the miracle worker, then maybe the miracle isn't that big a deal anymore. So I, I found it most compelling to to believe that narrative, although it's impossible to know for sure. So there's your little side of uh, Lazarus. Let's talk about the town of Bethany. Jesus spends a lot of time in Bethany. Uh, Yeah, let's go here. One of my projects was I had to make a little map. So here's a map I made. I worked so hard. I put so many hours into it. Anyway, Bethany is over here. And you have these two main inroads into Jerusalem. Now, that's as accurate as I could get it. But here is a Google map of the same area. If you look, you can see this is one inroad. And over here is the other. And you can see, I at least got this little point part, right? So this is roughly uh, where Bethany is today. I'm not going to try to pronounce that, but that's what it is. And you can see on Google Maps, I did this two days ago. It would take you an hour and 20 minutes to walk from city center in Jerusalem, through the main gate, and over to Bethany. Now, since John roots this narrative in Passover week, there would have been thousands of people filtering through these roads, this road in particular, walking through Bethany to get to Jerusalem. When they got to Bethany, Bethany is where they would have found some respite, some basic provisions, and they would sort of collect themselves and rejuvenate from the journey and go into the city. So think about who's there. Those are ones who are sojourners, okay? Starting to kind of get the clue of why Jesus spent so much time there. Another main uh, ministry in Bethany was to the sick and the poor. And the reason that was, is I tried to include a topographical map here, um, but the city sits up on a bluff looking this way, but it's kind of hard to make out. But the city of Bethany wouldn't have been viewable from the city, okay? And that was to to honor those purity laws of those who are sick being within the city they didn't even want the city of Bethany within eyeshot of the city so that's why Bethany was a good place for those who are sick and hurting and suffering to go and receive care um, to die this is why Lazarus was in Bethany when Lazarus died he was in Bethany and Jesus went to Bethany to see his friend's tomb the tomb of Lazarus is still uh, I think it's up this way uh, but the tomb of Lazarus is right nearby uh, where they think that was. You can visit that today. Now, Jesus spent a ton of time in Bethany because that's where the poor and the overlooked and the hurting and the sojourners were. Isn't that fascinating? So now when you when you read through in the New Testament and you see that Jesus is in Bethany, we don't have every story of what he did in Bethany, but it sort of lights your imagination of of what he may have been doing there and why he spent so much time in Bethany. That, that's where his people were. The people that didn't want him there but needed him the most were here. So as he's here, Lazarus is nearby. He's sitting down at Simon's house. And the other gospels give us some clues into what's going on here. Now this is gonna seem like a very confusing chart, but the story of this anointing scene is in all four Gospels. And here they are in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, in Mark 14, 3 through 9, Luke 7, 36 through 38, and here in John 12, 1 through 8. Now what's fascinating is to read through the different narratives and look at where they're consistent and the same and where they're different. So I thought we'd just kind of go through some of those. Look at the structure differences in Matthew and Mark and John, they all line up. That previously, what's discussed is the plot to kill Jesus, then the the anointing scene. But Luke has a difference. The previous verses were messengers from John the Baptist. Now notice the timeline. Matthew and Mark list this as happening two days before the Passover. Two days, not six, but two Luke doesn't mention it. Now, from my uh, reading here, my understanding is that Mark was probably written first of the Gospels, and Matthew was written soon after, followed by Luke, and John considerably later, John around AD 90-ish, which is why we have the most names of Jesus' female followers and disciples because, and and Lazarus and things like that. Um, Lazarus has the most narrative in John. Now, some of the thinking there is that since so much time had elapsed now, since Jesus' murder, that a lot of the heat had died down. So John was more free to name his disciples by name, where Mark would have had to be a little bit careful there because they were likely still alive. But John, near the very end of his life, Most of them had probably died anyway. So he named the ones that he could remember. So this is one of those reasons why uh, this isn't something we would get into on a Sunday because we have differing levels of understanding of, of how we got our Bible. But to answer the question of why John would say six days before Passover and Mark and Matthew would agree that it's two, we have to start with a definition of what we mean by the Bible as an inerrant Bible. The Bible is inerrant, meaning it doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact. It doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact. That definition leaves open interpretations, like John, to make some interpretational choices in representing the details. The facts remain the same. Jesus was in this place. Jesus did these things. But if it's two days or six days, doesn't change the theological implication of that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So then the next question is, well, if Mark was written first, many people think that Matthew heavily borrowed from Mark in writing his, but to a different audience. So it makes sense that Mark and Matthew would be the same. Luke may not have known definitively and left it out in his analysis. That's just a guess. John says six days, I think, because he's building this Passover narrative and he starts right here. When I got to preach Jesus's crucifixion in, I was up in Redemption Flagstaff that week. In that passage, it is just soaked in Passover uh, language. Even what Jesus got was the sour wine, but he got it on a hyssop branch. You remember that? Now, realistically, most agree, you wouldn't be able to, hold either a sponge on a hyssop branch, it's just a flimsy little plant, or just using the leaves wouldn't soak up any significant amount of sour wine. So that's another piece, and I didn't get into this in at Redemption Flag, I don't want to like undermine the Bible or, or seem to, um, but it seems like John is adding those details when it was more likely a spear with a sponge on the end or something. John's adding those details because he wants you to see Jesus as the Passover lamb. The hyssop branch is what they used to mark the doorposts. It makes a good paintbrush, but not a good straw. I don't know. So Matthew and Mark both describe this as at Bethany. So does John. John leaves out the location, but all the other Gospels agree that it's in the house of Simon the leper. Matthew and Mark both do not name, same same with Luke, they don't name this woman, but John does. I'll say too on this that there's a, a narrative that crept into my thinking when I was preaching on uh, Mary Magdalene. One, that she's a separate Mary, just, just a different Mary, but also that there's a narrative that she... Uh, was anointing Jesus' feet because she got that money because she was a prostitute and could afford that expensive oil because she was a prostitute and that the reason she was coming to his feet was out of repentance, sacrificing what she had made and how she had made that money. Um, But when you dig into that, that narrative comes from a European king who just guessed all of that, as best we can tell. And that narrative just sort of Followed the story. There's no hint of that. And if you look at John as speaking into this story, then John tells you exactly who it is. And we know that Mary was not that. Mary, like Mary Magdalene, was likely a wealthier businesswoman from the area and made her money that way. So, side note. But uh, they all agree that it is a very expensive ointment. There's lots of thoughts on, on the kind of ointment that's being talked about with the pure nard. It's not that interesting though, we'll save to that. Now, interestingly, in Matthew and Mark, they pour it on his head. So she breaks off the top, pours it on his head, okay? In Luke, he agrees with John, that weeping, she wets his feet with her tears wipes them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, and anointed the feet with the, with the oil. So Matthew and Mark are describing pouring on his head. Luke and John describe pouring on his feet. The two schools of thought that, that I was able to find were either this happened more than once, may, maybe this was a, a thing that happened more than once, or I think more compelling she poured some on his head and some on his feet. She drenched his whole body in the oil and was, what's cool about learning that this, like how she made the money to afford the oil, what's cool about unlearning maybe a false narrative is that if she's a prostitute repentant, then the weeping is is, um, sorrowful weeping. But, If Mary is a friend and a devoted follower of Jesus, then this this weeping over him was more likely an act of devotion and love rather than just sorrow. I'm sure there was sorrow mixed in because he's the savior. We don't know if she knows he's gonna be buried, but after he mentions it, she does. Now look at the reactions of the disciples sitting around the table. Matthew, they were indignant. Some were indignant. Simon questions the authenticity. Jesus gives a parable. Luke doesn't mention that the disciples were indignant at all. And then John focuses in a lot, as we read, on Judas. Judas was the one who had a a major problem here. Obviously, he's seeding the idea that that Judas is about to betray. Now, the reasoning that they give, line 9 here, is that this could have been sold For a large sum and given to the poor. Matthew makes it seem like it's the group. It's the group saying that. They all agree, like, hey, this could have been sold. Mark also says that. No one specifically says, hey, this could have been sold. Luke doesn't mention it. John agrees on the amount and the reasoning, but gives it specifically to Judas and gives that fascinating information about he was in charge of the money bag and he used to help himself to some of the money too. I think that's uh, pretty interesting. He consistently, been, consistently mentioned units, and he always said the one who prepared Jesus. Yeah. He always yeah. said, yeah, right? Yep. Yeah. So I did some digging into the cost. So 300 denarii. If you look back in um, Luke 10. No, wait. John 6, that's what it is. You remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000? Jesus says to, uh, who is it, Luke? No, Philip. Jesus says to Philip, hey, go get some bread so we can feed these people. And Philip says, how am I supposed to do that? 200 denarii wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii, and everyone would get just a little bit, just barely. Now, when we, that gives us a lot to work with because we can estimate there was 5,000, but remember it's 5,000 men by counting the households. So you could conservatively say 15,000 probably. So if you assume 15,000 people based on John 6.10, that that could be accomplished with 200 denarii, someone gets a little, you could use simple multiplication extrapolate that out. Remember, this is teaching, not application. It's just a fun fact. You could extrapolate that out. That 300 denarii would feed about 22,000 people. When I read that, I'm like, well, yeah, I kind of agree now. I kind of agree with the disciples. That, that could have been sold, and that could have been used to feed 20,000 people. Like, is that not better? It's really hard not to be drawn into that thinking. 300 denarii was quite a lot. Mark is the only one who gives us the detail uh, that they scolded her for her act of devotion, that they jumped in and scolded her, which this is the the narrative of, hey, this could have been sold. This is them talking to Jesus, but Mark includes they're also kind of giving Mary a hard time. Jesus comes to her, her defense. Why do you trouble her? Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Comparing Simon's hospitality to hers. Do you remember that in Luke? Right? You're supposed to greet me when I come in. You're supposed to wash my feet. You didn't. But Mary's washing my feet with her tears and her hair. Who has the greater devotion? John just says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing. She's not ceased to kiss my feet. You'll always have the poor with you but you will not always have me. You'll always have the poor with you. Interestingly, Mark adds the detail, whenever you want, you can do good to them. That's actually key to helping us understand what Jesus meant here. Luke doesn't mention it. John says, the poor you'll always have, but you won't always have me. So you could easily apply that and say, well, Jesus is very practically saying, She's anointed my feet with oil. In a week, you will never have that opportunity again. So take it now. What's interesting is when you look at Deuteronomy 15, it says, there will never cease to be poor in the land, which is a very clear language relation here that Jesus seems to have, Deuteronomy 15, in mind when he says, you'll always have the poor with you but that doesn't help us understand the, the reason for saying that because it kind of sounds flippant, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 you'll always have poor people, but, but me, I'm here now. But if you finish Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, this is what it says. You'll always have, uh, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, this is Yahweh saying, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So you could more accurately summarize what Jesus said like this. You and I both know the concern that the Bible has for the poor. You and I both agree with that and your responsibility in that. Mary has chosen the right thing to spend this oil on right now because you won't have that option later. So he's not minimizing the poor. He's nodding to this passage which affirms care for the poor while still saying, she's chosen the better thing. She's chosen the better thing. All right, let's talk about the crowd. No, let's finish this first. Um, She's done it to prepare me for burial. She's done what she could, anointed my body for burial. She may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, what's interesting there is the keep it because the other passages, how, how do you pour so much to soak someone and still have some left over? The thinking is that there was just probably more available that she didn't use. So this must have been quite a bit. Uh, line 15 is, is just so cool because you and I are living that word out right now. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be Remembered. What she has done will be told in her memory. Isn't that interesting? Now, immediately after this, structurally, it's Judas' betrayal uh, in Matthew and Mark. Uh, Luke gives some interesting details. You can see Luke's, Luke's version was the most brief with the least amount of detail, and John gives a lot of detail. So the crowd, after Lazarus died, there was a small crowd at his tomb, mourning, weeping, they knew Jesus was gonna be there. Jesus does the miracle, the crowd grows really big in that area. Now there's this crowd searching for this Jesus guy, and he's kind of eluding them, he's kind of staying out of their grasp, but then they hear, I just, I like that there's like this narrative of a crowd, And you can see it in the text, if we went back through and read. The crowd is building, they see him. They follow, because they hear he's at Simon's house with Lazarus, so let's go check out this Lazarus guy. I wanna see if this really happened. Now, something I hadn't really thought deeply about is that in that crowd, there were some who believed, and there were some who doubted. It's kind of self-explanatory. In a big crowd like that, you have a mix of reactions. Some believed that when they went to go find this Lazarus, they were going to find an imposter. This wasn't really going to be the guy. They were going to find this Jesus and find he's not all he cracked up to be. And there were some who genuinely believed. Now, in John 12, uh, the crowd began to grow. Uh, They came to see Lazarus chief priest said we're going to kill this guy too because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It's fascinating, isn't it? So there were many there that believed. Now the next day, verse 12, here's what happens to the crowd. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was now coming to Jerusalem. So they're gathered here, in Simon's house. Now they hear, wait, this guy's going to Jerusalem. So some follow, some cut, and they meet in this area for the triumphal entry. And they took branches, and they, we, we know the rest. So this is the same crowd, and this is what I hadn't quite realized. It's the same crowd that began with Lazarus, followed to the house, now followed for the triumphal entry. And this mix of believers helped me to understand why in six days before Passover, they were saying, Hosanna, King of David, here we go. They're swept into the emotion of the moment. Six days, six days later, they're saying, Crucify him. Kill this guy. We, we don't want him. That same crowd followed him all the way to the cross. And still, some believed and some didn't. I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, what questions do you have on any of what we've shared so far? Anything? You said Luke's account was the most brief regarding to... If, if I remember right, Luke split the narrative into two narratives. Uh, one that taught, do you remember the story of uh, the, the Mary and Martha serving story? I can't remember exactly where it is. Um, that Luke splits those stories into two. So one shows the anointing, and the other shows the devotion of this is how we know it's Mary and Martha and Lazarus in the room, like John at that anointing scene. Um, but he tells it in two different parts. One to explain. Mary is uh, devotionally with Jesus, Martha's serving which lines up with all the other gospel accounts Uh, and so we think that he just split it into two different parts yeah yeah Um, when Jesus first got the uh, news that uh, Lazarus was dead uh, Hmm. how far away was looking in John 11. It just says that he, I don't remember. I think it just says that he, oh, he went again across the Jordan where John had been baptizing and he remained there. So he was near the Jordan River when he heard, it says he stayed two more days and then went. So he had to cross a body of water to get to Lazarus. Yeah. Okay. thought he just like an hour and Oh, so he waited two days. When he came, he found Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. So he waited two of those and traveled two. So he was two days away. I've got a little bit more about Bethany. Um, Bethany is referenced 11 times in the New Testament, which is really fascinating. The Bible says it's about two miles away, and we could see from that map that that's pretty close. 5.3 kilometers. Um, There's some debate on exactly the the etymology, the word study of the word Bethany, people think it comes from either Aramaic or Syriac root word, meaning either poor house or house of affliction. And the impact's the same either way. This was to serve as a refuge for the poor and the sick and the weary travelers. It would have been passed through by, like I said, sojourners traveling through now every time I read the New Testament, I see Jesus is at Bethany. It just enriches that whole narrative. I looked up all the churches in Phoenix that are Bethany this or Bethany that. There's a lot of them. It's great. Yeah. What else? Yeah. So they say they claim that that church was planted by him, and so he lived out his days. If that narrative is true, um, pastoring a church, leading a congregation. He, he, would have been con- he would have been thought of as a kind of saint. Yeah. I wish we had more about it. I, I, loved, I loved finding out about that. It's hard to know what, what to believe and what's not. There's not a lot of research that I found about Lazarus. There's a, a lot about the Bethany siblings, Lazarus and Mary and Martha being siblings. What else? Okay. All right, well, we are, let's see, according to that clock, seven minutes early. Pretty good. That's about two months' worth of work in uh, 30 minutes for you. So there you go. So much more detail, but I think uh, those were those were some of the main things that were most fascinating to me. So, all right, thanks everybody. Thanks for coming. Next week uh, is a different time. Remember, it's going to be. Is it no? It's not next week. It's not next week. Oh yeah, it's June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's June fifteenth. Okay, disregard. Next week continues. It would be great. Mr. Gardner is my father. Mr. Gardner? Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, everyone.